Well, good morning. So my name is Levi Francois. Um, about a month ago, I started full-time at our East site, our New Haven site, um, and uh, my title is Disciple of, or I'm sorry, Director of Discipleship, still getting it down. Um, but yeah, been blessed in that position and uh, just hitting the ground running, really, but really glad to be with you guys here this morning at the North site. Uh, many familiar faces, but there are certainly new ones, um, and I would love to, to meet some of you after, after service. Uh, but let's, let's just open up in prayer. If you wouldn't mind, just bow your heads with me. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for, for today, for this morning, just this beautiful morning, God. I uh, thank you just uh, for the words that just were, were ruminating uh, throughout our prayer uh, before the service, um, and that just surrendering, being that just at, at the core and at the crux of it all. Uh, Father, we just ask that you would move, your Holy Spirit would move, and, and people would move to action um, today, this morning. So we pray that in your name, Jesus. Just go before us, Father. Amen. Amen. So if we could get the next slide up. So can anyone tell me what mountain range this is? Yell it out. Yes. So this is the Himalayan mountain range, which is home to the highest mountain peak in the world, and that is it's home to Everest. So if you've been around me for the past six months, you would know that I've been absolutely obsessed with this mountain range. And the idea, for me, it's, it's the idea and thought of summiting or climbing to the top of the mountain, climbing to the top of Everest, has just been one of the most puzzling and confusing ideas to me, uh, which has led me down uh, a road of significant research. So it all started when I was sitting at work and my buddy turned to me and said, hey, dude, do you know that there are hundreds of dead bodies on the face of Everest? So don't judge me, but that fact alone had me hooked. So naturally, I stopped doing my work and started researching. See, my, my boss was at the last service, so I had to clean that up for him. But in my research, I, I was just constantly looking things up, watching documentaries. I was given a couple books to read about Everest. Uh, I was doing so much research that I remember someone came up to me and said, hey, Levi, are you interested in climbing Everest? To which I said, absolutely not. Two reasons. First, it's below freezing up there. I didn't even like the winters in Haiti. And two, there's only been like two black people to ever climb this mountain. So I have no intentions on being number three. But in my research, I learned that Everest stands at 29,029 feet which is the cruising altitude of a Boeing 747. I learned that a quarter of people die trying to summit this mountain. Just this past month, there were 11 deaths atop the mountain, making it one of the deadliest seasons of Everest mountaineering ever. And one of the most common causes of death is due to altitude sickness. So what this means is, uh, like I said, Everest is at 29,000 feet, but once you are above 26,000 feet in altitude, the oxygen content is so low that your body is literally shutting down. 
It's literally dying during the time at which you are at said altitude. So they say like if they take untrained people like us and they transport us immediately from here to the top of Everest, we would have 30 minutes before we would succumb to the extreme altitude. And there are people that successfully climb the mountain and, and those ones, they come back because it's so cold and it's so frigid up there, they typically come back with extreme frostbite. So fingers, toes, gone. See, I'm convinced that I can catch a frostbite in 70 degree weather. So I couldn't imagine what Everest would do to my poor little Haitian body. But can you guys see why I'm so puzzled? With all the associated risks, all the warning signs, not to mention the cost, it costs 70 plus thousand dollars just to climb with a guide. And you need a guide to climb, by the way. Why in the world would anyone want to risk it all just to summit the mountain, just to say, hey, I climbed Everest? And I mean, they're quite literally risking it all. And I just got this uneasiness, this feeling of just trying to figure out what, what's the prize and is that prize really worth it? And many of us this morning will never attempt such a feat, but we can all relate to the thoughts behind it. So what's the prize in your life that you're pursuing? What's the most important thing that you're pursuing in your life today? Is it success? Is it money? Is it happiness? Is it your career? Is it your family? Let me just say, none of those things are inherently bad. In my short 25 years of life, all of those have gripped my heart and competed for that number one spot. But what we're going to see today is that Jesus tells us that there is a prize of such value, a prize of infinite value, a prize that is worth our full surrender to God. So let's turn to Matthew 13, starting at verse 44. So Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all that he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything and bought it. So all throughout this chapter, just kind of backtracking a little bit, all throughout this chapter, Jesus is talking about his kingdom. He's sharing the good news. Another thing to note is that he is purposefully doing so by utilizing parables, which leads one to ask, um, what are parables and, and why is Jesus using them? So I know Brock opened up last week and gave you a synopsis of what the main points to parables are and, and, and what you can kind of glean from it, but I'll just run over it real briefly. Uh, so parables, they're short stories that represent kingdom truths. They're spoken in the common language of the day, which made them often very memorable. They're simple in language, but deep in meaning. They're confusing to some and life-altering to others. 
and parables followed the progression of picture, mirror, and window. So going to that first point, parables are short stories that often represent, or not often, I'm sorry, they're short stories that represent kingdom truths. There's no often about it. So short, often fictional stories that Jesus used, and these are kingdom truths because they were challenging the thoughts of the day. They were paradigm shifting. They're spoken in the common language of the day, um, and Jesus lived in an agricultural setting, so all of his, or most of his similes and, and analogies, they would reflect or be reflective of his current surrounding. Simple in language, but deep in meaning. As previously mentioned, these were kingdom truths. So although they were simplistic in verbiage, there was always a deeper meaning. And that deeper meaning did not immediately manifest to the ones who heard it. Which leads us to our next point. They're confusing to some and life-altering to others. See, Jesus was speaking to two crowds. He was speaking to those who were self-righteous and hardened in heart, and those who are meek and humble in heart. See, the self-righteous ones, most of whom were Pharisees, they were also know-it-alls. So everywhere Jesus went, everywhere Jesus taught, they went as well. But their purpose, their sole purpose for being there was to accuse and to cast doubt. See, they were always accusing Jesus of committing heresy. But Jesus was ready for them. And in being ready for them, he was also sensitive to the ones that were humble and meek in heart and who were genuinely seeking him out. So that deeper meaning, like we mentioned, it didn't immediately manifest to the Pharisees. It didn't connect with them. Not only did it not connect with them, but it also confused them. But the ones who were true followers, this was life-changing. And although... They didn't fully conceptualize what was being told to them. They saw after Christ and found the true meaning later on. Lastly, the parables follow the, the progression of picture, mirror, and window. So these parables would paint a picture of ideas, thoughts, and realities. And this picture would then compel us to be introspective and look at our lives and see if our lives mirrors what, what Jesus is talking about, what's going on in front of us. But all these parables had a window, a window that allowed us to, to take a glimpse into what Jesus was doing, get a clear view of how he viewed the world, and so that we can orient our lives and our thoughts the same way that Jesus did and be more like him in doing so. So the parable that we're looking at today goes back to our main question, what's the prize that you're pursuing in your life? Going back to the verse, Read it again. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy went and sold all that he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything that he had and bought it. So what is this saying to us? What does this parable tell us? I believe that the parable is saying that the prize of the kingdom and the joy that it brings is worth our full and complete surrender to God. It tells us this by highlighting these three points. The kingdom of God 
is priceless in value. The kingdom of God is the source, the only source of true joy. And the kingdom of God, it has a high cost. So let's dig into this. The kingdom of heaven is of such great value. If we look, if we look back at that verse, it's of such great value that when one finds it, everything that they have, including their life, is deemed worthless without it. A verse that, that kind of helps spells this out. First Peter, First Peter 1, starting at verse 3. Praise be to God and our Father and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and his great mercy He has given us new birth into living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. So let's just pause there. I think about the prizes that are competing for my heart. Think about money, it will spoil. Think about career and achievements, those will fade. Think about my family. And if we think about our families, nuclear and extended, they have all let us down. In one form or another, our families, they have all let us down. I think about my wife and two children, and I pray that I never become that prize to them because I will disappoint them. I will let them down. But there is a prize that will never perish, never spoil, nor will it ever fade. It's priceless. The kingdom of God is priceless. Paul says in Philippians 3, 7, and 8, But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the, of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. The prize of the kingdom and the joy that it brings is worth our full and complete surrender to God. So the kingdom of God is a source of real joy. So picking up where we left off, an inheritance that can never, never perish, never spoil, nor can it ever fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this, you greatly rejoice. Though now for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. I don't think it's a stretch to say that to truly appreciate joy, you have to understand brokenness. And if there's something that we all in this room have in common, that's pain and brokenness. So many, many summers ago, I used to work on rental properties. I would just go and, and help fix them up, and this was typically following an eviction of some sort. So this is important because there's an in-between period from whence the notice is given to the tenants, the time, they have a time at which they, they need to vacate the premises so that the owner can fully repossess what is theirs. One thing I learned about that period, that in-between period, is that it is often full of destruction. I can remember one time when I walked into this home, and as I mentioned, this was following an eviction. I walked in, and I was just shocked at what I was looking at. 
It was absolutely unlivable. Damaged property everywhere, broken appliances. And there was filth just all over the place, just everywhere. Like I mentioned, the tenants, out of anger, they destroyed everything. And guys, that's the world in which we live today. So God created for us this beautiful paradise. Then sin crept in, and the enemy will not be satisfied until everything is destroyed. Depravity, wars, sorrow. We are living in the in-between. On a personal level, hurt, sickness, disease, depression, disappointment. We are indeed in the in-between. But what brings me great joy in the face of all of this, the only thing that can bring me joy, is knowing that one day God will come back and repossess what is his, and at that time he will fully and completely bring all things to restoration. I hope that brings you great joy. So it brings me great joy to know that things will not always be this way. No longer will we experience hurt. No longer will we experience depression. No longer will we experience sickness. And one thing that's sensitive to me is our injustices. And on that day, no longer will we be victim or witness to injustice. thought about sharing this story, but I can remember growing up in Haiti um, when I was a little boy, just walking the streets, walking from school, seeing just a mob of people behind a couple men, and they were just bloodied up because they were being beaten and tortured, and that made no sense to me. And I think back, in that moment, that haunts me every single day. I think about that moment, and I think about God, when are you going to come back and restore what is wrong with this world? This brings me great joy. Even greater, not only am I joyful of the hopes of that day, but we can also rejoice in our reality today. In Luke, Jesus tells us that his kingdom is within our midst. So all that will be restored in heaven is being restored today. His kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. So all that we will see come to full restoration. Everything that we will experience in heaven with the power of his Holy Spirit, we can, will, and are experiencing that today. I praise the Lord for that. Romans 14, 17 tells us that for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in his Holy Spirit. So in the kingdom, we find righteousness amidst the depravity. We find peace amidst the wars and joy amidst the sorrow. I'm joyful in knowing that God is and will bring things to full and complete restoration. 
So the prize of the kingdom and the joy that it brings is worth your full and complete surrender to God. Lastly, we see that the kingdom of God has a high cost. So let's make sure we're on the same page. There's nothing that we can do to obtain or purchase the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of God, it doesn't cost you a thing for it's a free gift. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but for the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So the kingdom of God can't be purchased, and neither is the parable suggesting that you can purchase it. So what's the cost being referenced here? See, in our understanding of parables, we know that they are spoken in simplistic format, but they maintain an eternal truth. And in seeking after the Lord, he will reveal that truth to us. This is something that is not made apparent to all who hear it. Like I said, the Pharisees, they look at this parable and in their heart and hearts, they can only take it for face value. They can only see that, yes, they they can indeed do something to earn favor or to earn the kingdom. They can purchase the kingdom. Their works will get them to the kingdom of heaven and to experience that joy. That's how they view it. Let's, Let's look at verse 45, parable of the pearl. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. So this this merchant, he's on a quest. He's on a quest to find pearls of value. It doesn't explicitly state that he has one in mind. He just knows that there's value out there and that value that he must obtain that value. So given the context, it's safe to assume that he's coming across all sorts of valuable items, all sorts of valuable pearls, none of which are halting his search until he comes across that one. And let's focus on what he did when he found that one pearl. He sold everything that he had. So what does that mean? So let's consider what a merchant is and what a merchant does. Merchant buys and trades commodities in pursuit of wealth. So it's more than that, however, it's it's a way of life. So a merchant wasn't confined to one place. They were going to different cities, different countries, often different nations, taking their goods, taking their merchandise, and engaging in commerce. But in that parable, we see that the merchant in question comes across a pearl, one of such value that he sells everything. Let's think about that. All his belongings, all his merchandise, he sells them. He's literally forsaking his way of life for that one pearl. He's surrendering it all. He's surrendering it all because at that point he realizes that the prize of the kingdom and the joy that it brings is worth his full and complete surrender to God. That's the cost being referenced here. His full and complete surrender to the saving grace of our Lord Christ Jesus. For some of us this morning, we're a small group. So this is, I'm going out on a limb, but I would imagine that some of us have not made that decision to accept Christ Jesus into our hearts as Lord and Savior. 
Instead, we're seeking out joy in perishable prizes. Success, career, happiness, money, family. Jesus is calling you to surrender. And simply put, it's saying, I'm done trying to rely on myself. It's saying, God, you are the Lord of my life, and I want to make you Lord of my life over these perishable things. Saying, I realize I know that I, I think I know best, as we all tend to think. But you who created me, you have a specific plan for me. And I want to start walking in that this morning. And for others, that's realizing that although we've surrendered our lives to God and we're living in joy with God, with relationship, we're living in the joy of relationship with him, it's realizing that he has more for us yet. And that requires a daily and continual surrender. So what does it look like to grow in greater levels of surrender? Is there a prize in your life that's holding you back from greater levels of joy in his kingdom? So is there an area in your life that requires surrender, simply put? See, for us at Francois, this was time. And that's among a host of other things, but, but time. About three years ago, my wife and I and, and some dear friends of ours, we started to live missionally. The idea was that the Francois were going to live in community with our friends, the Menzies, and for a period of time, Zach Zeno. Uh, we wanted to follow the example that was set by Jesus as he sent out the 72. He sent them out in pairs. And we wanted to do the same, and, and, and just the mission was to go and make disciples, reach our friends, reach, reach the ones in our surroundings, reach the people of peace, in our community and, and just make disciples. So we did that. Living missionally and doing this as family units, this meant that we were sharing resources, we were in weekly prayer with each other, we were intertwining our lives as much as we possibly could. And every Sunday, we were intentional about inviting people that the Lord has laid on our hearts, people of peace, into our home to join us in that community. A couple quick notes. I'm not telling you about our missional community because I think we're perfect. Quite the contrary, we've made a lot of mistakes. I'm detailing this because we represent a living truth and we rejoice in what God has done in spite of our failures. So living missionally and living in community, second thing to note, it has different contexts, has several contexts, and it looks differently for, for many of you, many of us. For some, it's two family units living under, under one roof, under the same household. Heck, if it was up to Brian Menzies, that would be us. But it's not up to Brian. For some, it's, it's just being neighborly. It's taking that step to be intentional with your coworker, with your friend, with your family member. It's going after the one that exudes peace but is desperate for hope. 
It's inviting people into what we're already doing. Family dinners, service projects. Because as believers, one thing that I find is we tend to think that we are wretched and no one wants to come and do what we're doing. No one wants to be around us, especially when we're in the confines of our home. But God's telling you that you're the light of the world. Not because of anything that you've done, but because of what he's already done through you. So invite and extend. Because the ones around us, they're desperate for hope. So how has living missionally played out for the Francois and Menzies? Well, we started about three years ago. I was still a full-time student at Ball State, and Shandy, Brian's wife, was full-time at Purdue. Mind you, she was pregnant during uh, the time at which she was finishing her degree. Uh, My days consisted of three-hour commutes to Muncie and back while managing some part-time jobs back here in Fort Wayne. There was also a period of time where my wife, Allison, was commuting to Marion for her full-time position. So in the process, both couples had children. The Menzies welcomed Georgia and we, Emberly. Shani graduated from undergrad, but Brian and I both decided to go back to grad school. As if things weren't tight enough with one child each, both couples welcomed more children into the mix. So we welcomed Estelle and the Menzies welcomed Theo. In all this, we devoted the little time that we had left to living missionally and trusting that God could do something with the little bit that we are offering. And I'm not telling you this to boast. In fact, I'm, I'm giving you a recipe of what can lead to a failed attempt at living missionally. So this was tough. And speaking for the Francois, this put a strain on every aspect of our lives in relationship. I wanted to give that missional community part of my life up every single day. I wanted to take back that time that I was devoting to doing it. See, we couldn't see, there were many times where we just couldn't see the prize. We couldn't see the value in what we were doing. But by the grace of God, we got through it and we continue to meet today. Let me tell you, the joy that we've experienced is incomprehensible. As a family, we grew to understand a deeper meaning of what it means to be family. God blessed us with greater capacity than what we could have ever imagined. We grew in our ability to be fully reliant on God. One of the biggest areas was time, but we also grew in our ability ability to rely on him with finances, parenting. I mean, the list goes on. We grew in faith. We've also seen many of our friends hear and respond to the gospel, two of whom were baptized at the Grace Gathering New Haven site around this time last year. I think that's worth a celebration. So as we think back to the parable, we see this picture of two individuals who are willing to give up everything for this prize, and that prize is the joy that they will experience in being in God's kingdom. We are then forced to think about the prizes in our life. 
We're not only forced to think about them, but we also are forced to identify the hindrances and the prizes and, and, and just these things that we put up on a pedestal in our life. So in addition to giving us examples, God also gives us several opportunities. And this morning is no exception. So let's take that next step and surrender. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that for the joy that was set before you, you endured the cross for us. And we thank you for that. And God, we pray, I just want to pray just a, a moment of response and movement that we would not only hear about the things that are hindering us and the things that we are putting too much stock into, that we are refusing to, to cast out of the way and put you up there, that we're not just going to hear that and think about it and, and think it's a great idea, but we're actually going to do something about it. And we're going to surrender. Whatever it may be, we're going to surrender. For those who don't know you this morning as Lord and Savior, I pray that they can come to a surrender. God, you just meet them where they're at. And for those of us who have been following in your, in your word, in your step, in relationship with you for the past however many years, I ask that we would, we would come to the realization that you have more for us yet, and you always have more for us. And God, we just ask that you just overflow our cup. You just fill us up, Jesus, in your name. Amen.